The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. With degrees and doctorates from Harvard and Brown University, Dr. Jim Young Kim is one of the best educated people to ever serve as head of the World Bank. But he's also one of the most unconventional. Kim's degrees are in biology and anthropology, and his job history includes time as a professor at Harvard and president of Dartmouth College, where he was the first Asian American to lead an Ivy League institution. But when President Obama nominated Kim to lead the World Bank in 2012, he took on the role with great zeal, calling the bank one of the most critical institutions fighting poverty and providing assistance to developing countries in the world. Kim won the election to become president of the World Bank in April of 2012, and he was re-elected to the role in September of 2016. He recently sat down with Carlyle Group co-founder David Rubenstein. They spoke on David Rubenstein's Bloomberg television program, Peer-to-peer conversations. You became the president of Dartmouth, I think, in 2009. You're there for a couple years, and you're trained as a medical doctor and as a social anthropologist. You have no finance background. Um, All of a sudden, somebody says, would you like to be the president of the World Bank? What would make you think that would be a job you would be qualified for, and why would you want to leave the academic setting that you've spent much of your life in? Well, it was a, it's a question that a lot of people in the financial world asked as well when I was nominated. But, um, you know, I, we had always known in all of my years working in development that the World Bank was the most important institution for people who, who wanted to help poor countries develop. And so um, I you know, came to the interview with President Obama, and he was asking me exactly the same question. He, he literally said to me, why should I nominate you and not a macroeconomist? And so th- this is when I, when I made the pitch, probably the most important pitch I've made in my life. I said, well, you know, um, the first question I asked him was, have you read your mother's PhD dissertation? And he looked at me and he said, well, yeah, I have. And I said, well, you know, I'm an anthropologist like her. And so I said to him, you know, I haven't uh, been in the finance world, but I've been on the ground doing development work for most of my adult life. I'll be able to tell you how it's working on the ground. And he just looked at me and he said, okay, I get that. So uh, was he surprised you actually read his mother's PhD thesis? He was, he was. And he, he later, in a, we were together in a more informal setting and he said, you know, Jim, that was one of the best ploys to get a job I've ever seen. <laughs> All right. So did you feel intimidated for this job when you didn't have those kind of backgrounds or not? Well, I certainly felt humbled about it. And, and, uh, you know, we have people here in the audience, many of whom taught me a lot about how the World Bank works. And so um, I I felt like, well, you know, learning finance and learning macroeconomics uh, is going to be a huge challenge for me. But for the previous presidents coming in, learning development must have been an even bigger challenge for them. And so I felt like I knew about what development was like, what working in developing countries was like. And, and then I really worked hard to learn the other, the other things that I needed to learn when I got here. When you show up at a meeting or something and you tell people you're the president of the World Bank, do they 
their eyes kind of open wider or their jaws drop? That's a pretty good title. But it depends on where you are, right? So when I, in, in, in Washington, if you do that, they'll say, well, do you guys have a branch in Alexandria? Right. right? So, uh, and, do you and, have ATMs? I mean, so, so some places you're extremely well known, right? And other places you're not known at all. But when you're, let's say, playing golf and you're a very good golfer, you're like a five handicap, as I understand it, very good golfer. I'll ask you about that later. Do people give you putts more than they used to when you're, you're president of the World Bank, or that doesn't happen? Not at all, not at all. Yeah, you know, they have the mistaken impression that, that I have access to cash myself, and so they're trying to get that from me. I see. Let's talk about your background. Why did your parents come to the United States? Your father was a dentist, and your mother was a professor? She's a professor of philo okay. philosophy, yeah. My father uh, was a refugee from North Korea. He escaped from he North, escaped Korea, from to North South Korea, Korea to South Korea at the age of 19, and so he went into the army as a dentist. And because he had worked so hard on his English, he became a translator for many of the um, uh, army dentists and became good friends with him. And so they gave him a scholarship to come to the United States. My mother uh, was the top student uh, in the top high school in Korea, because they ranked everybody, literally, in Korea in terms of your uh, uh, high school ranking. And so she got a scholarship, and she, uh, she came to Tennessee by herself, and at the time, this was in the early 1950s. There are probably three or 400 Koreans in all of the United States. And so she and my father were introduced to each other through friends. They met in New York City, and they actually got married in New York City. And uh, like, like all of the, the, the Koreans, they, the idea was that they would learn in the United States, and they would go back to serve their country. And so they went back, but, uh, but uh, inescapably, you know, they saw how people live in the United States. And so their own aspirations for themselves and their children uh, went up. But did they have, was it hard to get a visa to come over to live here permanently then? So, so they, uh, my father uh, was a fully trained dentist and uh, was a professor. But when he came back, he had to complete the last two years of dental school again. So we were in Dallas and he was a, uh, he was a dental student at the same time, I think work, working as a nurse in a hospital to make enough money. And then um, we went, he finished his dental education at Baylor Dental School in Dallas. And then, for some reason that we're still trying to figure out, we moved to Iowa. Uh, I, we grew up in Iowa. But at the, at yeah. the, well, at the yeah. time, you did not speak English. So when I came at the age of five, I didn't speak a word of English. Okay. So you moved to Muscatine, Iowa. Then in high school, um, this is what I couldn't understand. How did you manage to be the quarterback of the football team, the point guard on the basketball team, class president as well, and um, also valedictorian? Was that, like, hard to do? or? Well, um, so, well, I, you know, before you get too impressed with that, uh, our football team had the longest losing streak in the nation at the time. <laughs> okay. Uh, 56 defeats in a row. Oh. And I very proudly say I kept that streak going uh, dur during you my You weren't recruited year. to play at the University of Iowa. No. Did you feel discrimination because you were Korean or Asian or there wasn't discrimination? Well, you know, there was one town that I went to play basketball in where um, uh, there were two African-American uh, uh, teammates and me. And the people were literally screaming at us, racial epithets. You know, I, can, I, I can't repeat them on television, but they were screaming at us, and they threw things at us and even spit at us as we were coming out to play. So I've had that experience. And as a quarterback, you're looking across, and they're looking in your eyes, and you know, every uh, racial slur you could imagine right. was, was thrown at me. So I grew up with it. I grew up with it, and it's, uh, it, 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 uh, I think it taught me a lot. It, made me understand what that part of the world uh, uh, can be like, at least, you know, uh, years hey, ago. 
Okay, so uh, you're in Iowa, you do all very well in high school, and you go to Brown, and you apply to, and I guess get in the hardest medical school to probably get in, Harvard Medical School. So were you surprised you got in, and was that your first choice? Um, I, well, I was really surprised to get in, and in fact, it was not my first choice, because uh, I, I actually, I was trying to convince my father that um, I was not going to go to medical school, but I was going to go and study political science and philosophy. I uh, came home from Brown uh, one summer, and uh, he asked me, so what are you going to study? And I said, well, Dad, you know, I think I'm going to study political science and philosophy, and I think I'm going to get into politics. Right? He literally pulled the car over to the side of the road. Uh, we were coming back from the airport, a tiny little town, and he said, hey, um, when you finish your internship and residency, you can study anything you want. Right? <laughs> and so for him, and, and he used to talk like that. He said, look, you know, you, and, and he, for him, of course, it was very clear who we were in this country. Right. We were in Iowa. He said, you're, you're, you're a Chinaman. He used to say this to me. You're a Chinaman. You think people are going to pay you to hear your ideas about uh, political science and philosophy? Get a skill. And I, I, it turned out that it was really great advice. I mean, I, there's so many things that I've learned and have happened because I had this notion that I needed to contribute something concrete in order to, to make it in the world. So then you decide to go into another program where you get a PhD in anthropology. Now, did your parents say, look, a medical school degree is all you need. Why do you need a PhD as well? Well, it, th this was the great compromise. And uh, my, my father uh, felt that as long as I was in medical school, uh, that it's OK to loosen up a little bit. So you get your degrees, and you meet in Harvard Medical School um, Paul Farmer and the two of you with a few others started something called Partners in Health. Can you describe what that is? Paul and I began talking, you know, gosh, it was 1983 and 1984. We began talking about if you have what we call these ridiculously elaborate educations, that's what Paul called it, what's the nature of your responsibility to the rest of the world? And so uh, we thought and thought and, and we tried to keep asking the question, so if we have these kinds of backgrounds, uh, what's the nature of our responsibility to the world? And we came to the conclusion that our responsibility uh, was to, to commit to the poorest, most, uh, uh, most marginalized, most outcast people, and then do everything we can to provide them the best possible health care, education, you know, social protection. And that, um, we, would, that we, we weren't going to win. We weren't going to have some sort of victorious story. Because at the time that we started this, there was very little money uh, available in terms of uh, you know, global health or education. We thought, but you know, we're going to continue to, to uh, write about and talk about the situation of these very poor people. And we're going to do that for the rest of our lives uh, without any hope of being on the winning side. We, were, we, we chose at that time, so we said we are going to stay and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna work and, and continue to work on the losing side. You ran uh, Partners in Health for a number of years. Uh, it was focused initially on Haiti, later in Peru. And while there were, when you were in Peru, you once led a protest against the World Bank. In fact, you yes. had said the World Bank should be maybe shut down. Yes. Um, do you have any regrets about that? So I just want everyone here to know I'm very glad we lost that argument, right. uh, yeah. uh, and, and we did. At that time, what we were arguing was that um, the World Bank Group was too focused on GDP growth of, uh, and that the kinds of investments it, were, it was making uh, was not focused enough 
on things like health and education. And th this, was, this was an argument that was, that was going on in development economics. Now, you were an expert initially on tuberculosis. I had been working on drug-resistant tuberculosis okay. and uh, had done a lot of work on trying to um, just get the, the global health community to change its perspective on it. And then when I went to, to, uh, uh, to the World Health Organization, it was the same thing. I mean, there were the, the, the uh, overwhelming consensus, like 99.9% .9 of all the HIV physicians in the world were saying impossible to treat HIV in developing countries. And there were 25 million people in Africa who were living with HIV. And, and uh, the global health community was about to issue a death sentence on all 25 million people living with HIV in Africa. And so that's, that was what I did. So you're, you leave the World Health Organization after a couple of years heading their HIV program. You then go to Harvard Medical School and teach there. And then somebody calls you and says, would you like to be president of Dartmouth? Why did you decide to do that? Uh, it, it's a great question. And uh, sometimes I wonder myself uh, why. And I said to them, you know, my work for my entire life has been focusing on uh, the lives of the poorest. And I said, uh, I, I don't think I can do this because it feels to me like you're asking me to turn my back on the poor. And um, somebody on the, uh, the, the committee was, uh, you know, in, a, in, a, in, in what was a really a brilliant recruitment technique, said, no, 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 we're not asking you to turn your back on the poor. We're asking you to turn the faces of Dartmouth students to the poor. So I thought, wow, that sounds great. Right, so you did that. That sounds great. But turns out that's not actually the job of being president of a university, oh. which, David, you know very well. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies, from big tech to startups, will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. So uh, one of the things you focused on when you were President Dartmouth was trying to reduce the enormous alcohol consumption that undergraduates have. Um, I, I think, you know, for hundreds of years, university presidents have tried to do that with very little success. How did you find your effort? Um, let's see. Uh, you know, uh, what we tried at, at Dartmouth was, uh, the, was bring what I had learned in medicine. And what I had learned in medicine is that the things we do should be evidence-based. So I looked around and I said, are there things that we can do? And the, the things we tackled were drinking, but also sexual assault. We did a major effort on sexual assault. And we tried to ask the question, so what has worked in reducing harm from drinking? And what has worked in reducing sexual assault? And so um, we, uh, we brought 30 universities together, including, including your alma mater, Duke. Right. And uh, we, over a period of two years, we had them meet on a regular basis and share insights on programs that had been effective. And so I think, I think we reduced harm from alcohol consumption, but um, it's very hard to reduce consumption overall. Uh, when you came into the World Bank, was there resistance, like an organ transplant resistance to somebody who didn't have the same background that others had had? Well, so I, I, you know, to, to be fair, I think um, the resistance is not, was not just to me. There is resistance here uh, to the way 
the place is governed as a whole. Right? So you have people here 10, 15, 20, 30 years who have just deep knowledge. And every few years, someone new comes in. And they're supposed to run the institution. So I, I think there's, someone put it to me this way, that you know, World Bank Group staff have always been skeptical about the way the place is governed from the perspective of, uh, of the presidency. Uh, but um, uh, you know, when I came in, uh, I, I tried to honestly look at how the place was functioning and, and, and where it could go, what it could be. And I brought in uh, great people, Alan Mullally, the former CEO of Ford. Alan came and spent uh, uh, quite a bit of time with us looking at the overall structure. And I, I asked Alan, so what would you do if you saw an organization like this? And I, you know, I brought in a lot of people. And you know, what they said was, wow, this is an, an incredibly complex institution. And so there were a whole bunch of things that needed to be done. And I, you know, having done change processes before, I knew it was going to be painful. But I just felt like, you know, I, it's my it's my moral responsibility to just give it my best shot to to set up the institution so that it could it could uh, function as effectively as it possibly could. Let's talk about the World Bank. Right. So we have 189 member countries, and uh, we were founded actually before the end of World War II. They wanted to stabilize uh, uh, currency exchange rates after the war. But they also wanted an organization that would help to rebuild Europe. But then, of course, the Marshall Plan came soon after that, and uh, we expanded. Where does it actually get its money? Where does that money come from? You have a, how much money do you have? You know, we have a total uh, portfolio, almost $400 billion. That means you know, loans, equity investments that we, that we have right now. And so the, the great um, uh, innovation of the World Bank was that uh, uh, countries gave us capital. So they, there's paid in capital. We have a very, very good um, uh, re credit rating. So we, our credit rating is AAA, but it's probably one of the strongest AAAs in the world. Well, what we've been able to do is whatever equity we have, we use it to go to the capital markets and then borrow at a very low rate and pass that on to, to our client countries. What's the difference between the World Bank and the, and the uh, International Monetary Fund, the IMF? What the IMF does is it comes in in a situation where countries are in trouble, gives them a short-term infusion that is paid back in a relatively short period of time, and it's really cash related to policy changes. We actually do things like uh, help countries build roads. We provide specific uh, loans for roads. We, on the private sector side, we uh, give uh, loans directly to private sector companies who are working in, uh, in poor countries. We have another uh, uh, part of the organization that literally invented political risk insurance. There's a much broader range of things that we do at the World Bank, but of course we're much smaller than, uh, than the IMF. So you focus on developing markets, but now the developing markets have so much capital coming in from private equity firms, sovereign wealth funds. Is there a real need for the World Bank anymore? I don't think that they necessarily need our capital, um, but they certainly need our advice. And they certainly need the capital in the form that we can provide it. So in, for a middle-income country, if we can provide them a 25 or 30-year uh, loan uh, at you know, 25 or 3%, there are not many middle-income countries who are going to be able to go to the capital markets themselves and get a loan. And they also are not going to be able to get one where we come in and say, OK, we're going to give you this loan, it, whether it's for a, 
a particular project or for, uh, uh, you know, we give it right to the government budget, but then uh, the government has to make policy changes. Uh, there are very few organizations that will come to them and, and say, we're not going to charge you. We're not going to try to get the after work. Uh, we're coming in and we're going to give you the benefit of our experience and the experience of our client countries all over the world. We're going to give you 10 experiences in the world and how this problem that you're trying to solve was solved. And we're going to bring the people who actually know those cases. And uh, you know, as part of the loan, we're going to provide that for, uh, uh, to you for free. Not a lot of countries can do that. But also, David, you know, um, uh, there are some countries that are uh, getting you know, access to, to private equity and, and, and capital. But the vast majority of low and low middle income countries are not getting that. And so what we're now trying to do is to use the financing we have to help those countries become much more attractive for the okay. flow of private capital. So after you leave the World Bank, whenever you leave, what would you like to do? Well, I, you know, I've, in, in, um, in trying to look at the evidence for, um, uh, you know, for development, what, what do we need to do? I, I, certain things are very striking to me. One is that um, uh, if by 2025, indeed, everyone in the world, 8 billion people have access to broadband, then the experience that my parents had of coming to the United States and saying, wow, this is what the world could look like, everyone will have that on smartphones. As more people get online, their aspirations grow. So there's absolutely no way we're going to meet the aspirations of all 8 billion people without massive new investments coming from the private sector. And so you know, if I were to do anything after this, I would somehow work on that problem. Now, did your parents uh, live to see you become the president of the World Bank? Not my father, but, uh, but my mother. Uh, my, my father passed away uh, early uh, when he was 57, but uh, my mother has. And uh, she must be pretty proud to have been proud to see you be president of the World Bank. Yeah, yeah. And, and then and soon, after, you know, soon after I was named, she learned what the World Bank was. You know, so okay. so uh, I don't play golf because uh, I don't think I'd be very good at it. You're obviously a very good golfer. Uh, when did you have time to learn golf? So I grew up in, uh, in Iowa, and uh, we lived right near the local golf okay. course. And so I played it competitively all through high school. So you've played with President Obama? Yes. And you've played with President Trump? Yes, I have. Well, who's with better? <laughs> Uh, gee, uh, so, you know, um, <laughs> let, me, let me just put it this way. So President Obama started late in life, right? And so for someone who started late in life, he's very, very good. President Trump's been playing for most of his life, and uh, he is extremely good. He's an extremely good golfer. He, he can hit all the shots. So it's a, it's a, it's, it's, um, uh, it's, there are two different kinds of golfers completely. Okay. How's that? All right, that's a very <laughs> diplomatic answer. Now, what would you say is the greatest pleasure of your professional life? For, for me, I think the, the, the thing that I'm most grateful for is that I have been able to learn new things throughout every stage of, uh, of my professional career. Uh, and so as long as you stay open to it, I, I think that's the key. And if I were to give advice to anyone, I mean, you know, what we now know is that the jobs of the future will require that people are ready to continue to learn throughout their lives. In the old days, the advice was plastics, but now... Plastics, yeah. If you ever want to get into private equity when you leave the World Bank, let me know. <laughs> well, well, you did say that the, that the highest human calling is private equity. It is. I have to tell you that people who are willing to put risk capital into developing countries, right? right. that's the key. That's going to be the key. And unfortunately, there's not enough of it right now. And so uh, if... 
you know, it, it, making economies work for, for everybody. It, you know, this is essentially uh, what I say now uh, to everybody here at the World Bank Group. Our job is to make the global market system work for everybody and the planet. And whether you like it or not, whether you like it or not, it, it really, we really have to do that. There's, no, there's going to be no way to buffer yourself from 2 billion people living in Africa by 2050 who are going to have aspirations that are every bit as high as Europeans, as Americans. And, and so we have no choice but to make this system uh, work for everybody. Dr. Kim, thank you very much for what you've done for the World Bank. Thank you, David. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.